but this is the, uh, the second week in our series on Thy Kingdom Come, getting to the heart of the revolutionary message of Jesus. I'd just like to read a few words of scripture first, please. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. I just love our church family, I really do. And I am so pleased that God has placed Julie and me here in Tamworth to share our lives with you. And maybe one of the things I love most about our church family is our amazing diversity. You know, we're incredibly diverse in ages, nationality, languages, education, professions and cultures. But that diversity often makes a Sunday morning, for whoever is speaking, quite a challenge. And it calls for a variety of approaches. And uh, there are times when uh, we sh- what we share from the frontier is probably the equivalent of... Um, a McDonald's McFlurry. <laughs> Don't knock it. Ice cream is pretty good on certain times and certain occasions. But then sometimes it's a, a T-bone steak which is on the menu. It's a bit harder to chew and um, it takes time to digest. And you see, human bodies, we can't just live on ice cream, but we need other things. And we can't just live on T-bone steaks either. We need other other foods. And what I'm going to say to you is that this morning, actually, we've got steak on the menu. (laughs) And the reason for my saying this is that some of what I'm going to share with you will probably be a little bit harder, for some of you at least, a little bit harder to digest. But what I'm going to share is most certainly not beyond anyone in this room today. The series is entitled, Thy Kingdom Come. And we are focusing on Jesus' teaching, which was central to Jesus. And I've said before, I said last week, that if we do not understand Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, then we simply don't understand Jesus. We cannot separate Jesus and his teaching on the kingdom with Jesus himself and the gospel. So this morning, I'm going to tell you a number of things. I'm going to talk to you about the world of Jesus' day. I'm going to talk to you about uh, a few things that were happening in the Roman Empire. I'm going to te- tell you about the hopes of the Jewish nation. I'm going to talk to you about the diverse groups that you found in first century Israel within the Jewish community. And each had their own solution to the problem of the Roman occupation. Now, I know already that some of you, and we've got some history teachers here, you will love this. You would want every Sunday morning to be like this, with history and background and culture. And some of you are drooling at the prospect, but some of you are probably waiting for your next McFlurry. I know that. (laughs) That's okay. Normal service will be resumed next week. (laughs) Seriously, I really do feel that it's important. If we are to understand the scriptures, and we are serious about the scriptures in this church, are we not? 
And if we are to understand what we are reading from the lips of Jesus, in a sense, we need to understand the context for that. So I'm taking a, an entire morning to do that, rather than trying to sort of fill it in as we go along. And my hope and prayer is that the, through this morning's study, it will certainly help us in our understanding of the New Testament. It will also um, help us to appreciate Jesus better and to become better disciples of Jesus and that his kingdom will come and his will will be done in Tamworth as it is in heaven. So last week I said that uh, God's kingdom is both now and not yet. (coughs) It's come. It came through Jesus. He inaugurated the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. But in another sense, it is not yet come, not come fully. There's coming a day when Jesus will come back, when he will judge the living and the dead, when he will usher in his eternal kingdom. And then on that occasion, God's reign will be absolutely complete. The wolf and the lamb will lie down together. We read that from Isaiah last week. What a lovely picture. I'm I'm not sure if it's to be taken literally, but what a lovely picture that is of a kingdom where there will be no suffering, where every tear will be wiped away, where there will be perfect peace and justice. Isn't that wonderful? Brian, just come for a moment, please, and just share with me something that you share with us all, something that uh, you shared with me just the other day. Thank you. (coughs) I've recently had (coughs) what I can only call quite bizarre experience And what was happening to me was I was getting quite a clear picture in my mind of myself lying dead in my coffin. And this was happening throughout the day. And I was waking up in the night and that picture was quite clearly in my mind during the night as well. And it wasn't because I was contemplating my mortality. It wasn't because... I was afraid of death, because I'm not, because as a Christian I know where I'm going. But it was distressing all the same, and this was happening for a few weeks. So two weeks ago today, I came to the front and asked Steve to pray for me. Since that day, that picture has not occurred again. God has taken it away. Now, in the big scheme of things, that might seem just something really minor. But I don't believe there is such a thing as a minor miracle. And I'm just grateful that God's will is being done now. That's lovely. Thank you. Okay, why why did I ask Brian to share that? Because that is a little illustration of God's kingdom coming now. Yes? And, um, you know, as, as Brian said, it's a, a minor miracle. And it may not seem huge in the great scheme of things. But it's where God steps in here. And in our world, God's kingdom has come in part. And there are signs of the kingdom of God all around us. A little bit more of God's kingdom, a little bit more of God's reign comes every time a person is healed. Every per- time a person is delivered um, from demonic oppression. Uh, When someone comes to faith, and someone in coming to faith becomes a better husband or father, becomes a far more valuable member of society. God's kingdom comes on all these occasions. 
when people are reconciled or people groups, as Andy was speaking a few moments ago, are reconciled, more of God's kingdom come. As Diane was speaking a little bit earlier about the work that we are doing with many older people in the community, that we are being Christ to them, that um, something of the love of God is being shared in the lives of people who are otherwise isolated. A little bit more of God's kingdom is coming. And in Brian's case, when God supernaturally brings peace of mind and a good night's sleep, again, I would say, is a sign of the kingdom of heaven amongst us. If you like, it's a little taster. It's a little taster of what is yet to come. Last week I said that, um, that the kingdom was the central message of Jesus. And in the uh, Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, there are 120 occasions when the kingdom is mentioned. And mostly they're in context with what Jesus, what Jesus said. <clears throat> so this morning I'm going to help us try to understand a little bit more of what the Bible teaches of the kingdom of God and the context for that. And some of you might think that this morning is a little bit academic. Uh, I, I, I hope you don't. And please don't be put off by that. Because if it enables you in some small way to pick up your Bibles when you go home and read with fresh eyes, I think this morning would have been worth it. Do you agree? Right, all the steak eaters just said yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. The world superpower of the day was Rome. And Rome had been increasing in pro- prominence in the world for about two or three hundred years before um, the time that Jesus walked on the earth. Everything changed when Julius Caesar um, came to power. Caesar was his family name, like our family name is Jonathan. But what he did, Julius made Caesar um, a royal title. So from that time on, all the emperors that came after him were known as Caesar. It's probably a little bit like me insisting with the church leadership that all future pastors in this church should have Jonathan in their name. It's a very, very similar thing there. He was a great military leader. He was assassinated as a result of conspiracy in the Roman Senate. It threw Rome into a long and bloody civil war. Eventually, Caesar's uh, adopted son, Octavian, he became the emperor. Now, he took on the name Augustus. So he was Augustus Octavian, which means Augustus means worthy of honor. That was the title that he took on himself. And he was a man that ordered the census round about the time of the birth of Jesus. In fact, each Christmas when we have our nativity services and our carol services, someone will read that passage from Luke chapter 2, which says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken in the entire Roman world. And those words are quite well known to us. Well, that was him. Caesar Augustus was Octavian, this emperor. And uh, he declared that his adoptive father, Julius, had become divine. And that meant that if his father was divine, that he had become, quite naturally, the 
the Son of God. So if you asked anybody in the Roman Empire in those days, in the times of Jesus, from Germany to Egypt, from Spain to Syria, who the Son of God might be, they would all say, it's Octavian, it's the emperor. Okay? Octavian um, ruled from 31 BC to 14 AD. And uh, he also took on another role. He took on the role of chief priest, or in Latin, and Latin was the language of the day, Pontifus Maximus. And I'll come back to that in a moment and why that's important. But you say, why is this important? Actually, after Octavian, it was Tiberius. And um, he became the... Um, next emperor but why is it important why is it important to for us to realize all of this this morning when we read our bibles do you remember the occasion when jesus was asked um, is it right to pay taxes to caesar or not yeah okay well that's found in mark chapter 12 verse 14 let me just read a few of those words is it right to pay the imperial tax to caesar or not But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. The coin that was brought to Jesus at that time was this one. On the front of the coin it said, Tiberius, Caesar, divine Augustus. And on the reverse side of the coin, it said these words, Pontifex Maximus, or chief priest. But you're still probably asking, why on earth is this so important to know? Well, if, if you are living in a time when the emperor is claiming deity on the one hand, And on the other hand, he's claiming to be the chief priest and the only intermediator between men and God. And you go around preaching another kingdom as Jesus did. I think you're in trouble. Yes? If you're with me so far, put your... Yeah, okay, six of us, great. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Another facet that we need to understand, really, about this time is the story of Israel. The Jews had been living out their story as a nation. They'd been living out God's story for about 2,000 years. And it was like a great costume drama. Abraham and Moses and David and all the heroes of the faith. And the Jews, they told their great stories of deliverance and they retold those stories many times and there were many setbacks and disappointments such as the time that the whole nation was taken, annexed to Babylon you remember the song don't you, Boney M taken from the Psalms by the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept as we remembered Zion yes and they would pray and they believed that God, their God Israel's God would actually win out in the end. And the greatest story of all, and if you were to have Jewish people here today, 
I, I imagine that they would say that the greatest story of all was the story of the Exodus. And I'm sure that many of us, most of us would know the story of the Exodus. When Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt across the Red Sea, which parted before them, 40 years in the wilderness and then into the promised land. An amazing deliverance. And if you can understand the Exodus, you will understand something about Judaism, about the Jewish mindset. Because they believed that this could happen again. They believed that the God who brought a deliverance was their God, Yahweh, Israel's God, that he could deliver them, even in their day, from foreign oppression. And to put it simply, they believed that their God was in charge of the world. And he remained in charge of the world. And even though they were virtually slaves in their own land, this is when Jesus walked, walked the earth. They were virtually slaves in their own land. They believed that God would come to the rescue and he would send the Messiah. And then it happened. Jesus, he arrives on the scene and he starts proclaiming, the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. And you can just imagine the stir within that place that must have arisen at that time. That Israel's God was last on the move. He had sent his Messiah. Jesus performed miracles again, which uh, all added to this. And many of the Jews of that time wondered, could this possibly be the Messiah that, that God has sent? So you've got this political and religious tinderbox in Palestine. And then you've got a young carpenter, Jesus. He is preaching this rather explosive message, which is a direct confrontation against Rome. I think he would have got noticed, don't you? (laughs) And the two people that would have noticed Jesus straight away, one was Herod Antipas, Now, Herod Antipas wasn't Herod the Great, the one that we know about, but it was the son of Herod the Great. Do you remember the story of his father, Herod the Great, who was known as King of the Jews? When the Magi, again in the Christmas story, the Magi came to Herod and asked where the King of the Jews was born. What did he go and do? In fact, the guy was utterly paranoid. He went and slaughtered all those babies in Bethlehem, yes? That's the way he was. He didn't want anyone, any opposition to the throne, even though this was a newborn baby. Well, his son wasn't quite as much a fruitcake as his father, but he wasn't nice. Because he is the one who arranged the death of John the Baptist, the one who was called that fox. And I think that Herod, in hearing... Herod Antipas in hearing that someone was preaching about another kingdom which implied that there was another king would mean that he would not be very happy with that. The others who wouldn't be very happy with that were the chief priests because the chief priests, they were actually put in power by the Romans and they worked on behalf of the Romans in order to get taxes from their own people. So if either of them heard of someone going around as Jesus did And it was central to Jesus. It was a central message about this new kingdom. There would have been trouble. You see, when a regime is in power as the Romans were, 
you simply pass on that power to the next one in line. You know, Julius Caesar, Octavian, Tiberius, and so forth. But when you make the kind of announcement that Jesus did, when someone else is in charge, you're in trouble. Jesus came without credentials, without status, without army, without militia, without nobility or wealth, without land or home, and together with just a handful of male followers and an entourage of women supporters, he went around proclaiming this, this message. And he was attracted by the poor and the homeless, and he reached out to the disabled and the disadvantaged, the social outcasts, the marginalized in society. And he said that the poor and the little ones were the greatest in God's kingdom. He taught of God's kingdom, uh, that it advances with neither bloodshed or violence. And the kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world, but it advances slowly, quietly under the surface, just like yeast through the dough, he said, just like um, seed in the soil. And it advances with reconciling, forgiving love. It was great to hear Andy, what he was saying this morning there, about Rwanda, and all that they've gone through, the genocide that they've experienced, and yet there is this reconciling forgiveness within that, that nation. I tell you what, it would be great just to go and listen to the Archbishop to hear those stories. And that is the kingdom of God, you see. That's the kingdom of God advancing. That's the kingdom of God active. And when you think, think of it, you know, violent revolutions aren't really that revolutionary. Because regime changes, and we can see this in the Middle East, Regime changes which are brought about by military might are, are just the norm. We've seen that in Iraq, Libya. Um, that's the big fuss in Syria at the moment with the rebels who are wanting to uh, oust um, President Assad and also some of the NATO countries as well. But you see, what is revolutionary and groundbreaking is a revolution which isn't violent. And when you reflect on those words, what other kind of revolution could be revolutionary? What other kind of revolution could possibly change the world? For surely, by now, we all know that hate cannot conquer hate, and war doesn't cure war, and pride doesn't overcome pride. And violence will never end violence. And revenge will not stop revenge. And what Jesus proclaimed was God's kingdom was near. And he would go around telling all sorts of stories, like the two I read earlier on this morning, about businessmen and fishermen and hope makers and shepherds and dysfunctional families and kingdoms and farmers. And often he wouldn't even mention God by name. But whenever he spoke, people got the distinct feeling that he was actually speaking about God. And he normally spoke outdoors, on beaches and hillsides and fields and streets. And do you know what? Sometimes I get the, the feeling, I, 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 I actually sometimes question whether the Jesus of scriptures was actually much like the Jesus of Western evangelical Christianity. And sometimes, you know, we, we look at those old Jesus films, don't we? And we can have a little giggle because there's Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes. And, you know, we say, oh, my word, you know, that wasn't Jesus. He, he didn't look American or Western European. He looked like a Jew because he was a Jew. And we, and we giggle at the old Jesus films in that. 
But I still sometimes feel that we have still managed to create a Jesus in our own image. We might no longer visualize Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes. But we forget his Jewishness. We forget the things that we are looking at this morning. Um, And we've domesticated Jesus. um, And we've moved him away from being this revolutionary radical first century preacher that he was. So what does the Jesus of evangelical Christianity look like? The Jesus of evangelical Christianity has focused on our salvation, of getting our sins wiped clean so that one day we can go to heaven. And please, I, am, I have no problem with that. I am thankful that Christ has wiped my sins away. I am thankful that one day I will meet him face to face. I am thankful that the death is not the end. I am thankful that I am loved by his unconditional love. But I would also argue that this portrait of Jesus isn't the whole picture. And I know I've mentioned this several times before, and do forgive me. I'm going to give an illustration which I've probably given quite a few times, and I wasn't going to use it, but I thought I cannot think of a better illustration to explain what I'm explaining this morning than this story. It's a story of an American pastor who was interviewed on British television. And the interviewer asked him, Why have so many Christians in America unquestioningly supported the U.S. war in Iraq when their foreign policy, according to the interviewer, was so clearly against the teachings of Jesus? The American pastor seems rather surprised, even offended, so the interviewer explained, Jesus talked about peace and reconciliation. Jesus spoke about turning the other cheek. Jesus spoke about walking the second mile and that sort of thing. How do you reconcile that with your war? And the pastor hesitated for a moment and replied, Well, the teachings of Jesus are personal. They have nothing at all to do with politics or foreign policy. Yes, that was my reaction too. And I felt very queasy when I heard that. Because there was a time, I think, some years ago in my own spiritual journey, I probably would have answered similarly to the pastor. But that pastor was wrong and I was wrong. You see, whilst the teachings of Jesus are not only personal, they are certainly personal, they are not private. And the message of the kingdom, as we read it in the New Testament, covers everything. Covers economics and politics and international aid and foreign policy and war. How we are to relate to our friends. How we are to relate to our enemies. And more things. All of life. Not just that which we classify as spiritual. And to be honest with you, many of these uh, facets of Jesus' message escaped me for years. And as a good evangelical Christian, I focused on Jesus as my personal saviour. Actually, it's a concept which isn't found in the Bible. Personal saviour. I don't know where that came from. But the idea... That God loved me and that it was all about Jesus loving me and wanting me to be with him out of this world in heaven. But the idea that God loves the nations of the world, including those who might be regarded as our enemies, and that God desires even the foreign policies of our land, that they should reflect his love, that never, ever, ever entered my head actually 
get them saved and get them to heaven wasn't high on Jesus' agenda. As I said last week, he spoke very little of the life you're after. He spoke nearly everything about the life here and now. Thy kingdom come, he asked us to pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I would say, you know, if you underline anything, if you mark your Bibles, underline those two words, on earth. Okay, coming back, Jesus was Jewish. And if we attempt to read the Gospels without this, then we'll probably miss the heart of Jesus' teaching by a country mile. We need to understand it. I've said to you a hundred times before that when we're reading the scriptures, you know, it's context, context, context. We need to understand the historical context of what we're reading, the literary context that, you know, this verse doesn't appear in, in midair. You know, it's connected to the verses before and afterwards, the chapter before and afterwards. And we need to be grown up in the way that we read the scriptures. And uh, this little Rudyard Kipling um, uh, poem, I, I think I might have shared it with you before, is, is, is a great little poem. I, I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. And those six serving men, I think, are absolutely brilliant. When we approach our Bibles, because I know that many people struggle over the Bibles. How, how do we understand this? Because we're removed not only by 2,000 years, but by 2,000 miles. And we need to ask those questions. What is this passage trying to tell me? Why is this being said? When did this happen? How did this occur? Is there any significance in where it happened? Who was speaking to whom? Very, very important that we ask those questions uh, when we're reading the scriptures. So, Jesus, when he was speaking, when he walked the face of the earth, he was speaking to people who were under foreign occupation and oppression. And they had been for over 600 years. Now, if you know anything about the history of the Old Testament, it was in 586 BC, 600 years roughly, 586, that the Babylonians were raised up and they came and conquered Jerusalem and Judea and they took many of the inhabitants, many of the people, back to their, their land. As we quoted earlier, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. But after them came another world power. It was the Medo-Persian kingdom. And after them, another one. Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. And after them, there was someone else, the Romans. So for 600 years, the Jewish people felt about their occupiers much probably in the same way as many modern Palestinians feel about the Israelis. It all seemed very wrong. We are God's own nation. How can these pagans rule over this? They don't have God as we have God. He is our God and yet we are suffering in this way. And you know what? Everyone had an answer to those perplexing questions. And I'm going to finish now in a few moments' time with just um, giving you some background and introduce you to four groups that were in society in Jesus' day. The Zealots. I'm sure you've all heard of the Zealots. These were the freedom fighters. Uh, One of Jesus' own disciples was called... Simon, and he was known as Simon the Zealot. So even after he came and became a follower of Jesus, he was still known by his having been a zealot at one time. Now the zealots said the reason 
that we are oppressed is because we are too cowardly. What we need to do is to rise up and rebel and fight against the Romans. Slit a few Roman throats if we can. If we've got the, the faith and the courage to start a revolution, sword in hand, God will honour us, much in the way that he honoured little David, young David, against that monster Goliath. Okay? So that's what they were going around to say. Then there was another group called the Herodians. Surprise, surprise, they were followers of Herod. You didn't guess that, really, by looking at the word there, did you? But they were also very, very closely linked to the Sadducees. If you like, the aristocracy of, of um, Israel. And what this group said, they said those zealots, they're stupid, absolutely stupid. They've got no idea at all how powerful Rome is. If we rebel and resist as the zealots are telling us to do, then we'll get crushed. So they had another solution. They said the way forward is to cooperate and play their game. Look for compromise. That's the only safe way. And you know what? They had a bit of a vested interest in all of this because they were living a very comfortable life, these people. So they didn't mind the Romans being there because they were actually living a very, very comfortable life. Then there's another group. The Essenes. Now they're the ones who live down by the Dead Sea and I know that some of you have been on uh, tours of Israel uh, near the caves of Qumran. And um, they are the ones who recorded and stored the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in the 1940s. It was, it was from that community. Now, the Essenes thought that the Zealots and the Herodians were balmy. And what they said, the only way to please God is to withdraw from the, the corrupt political systems of our day. Let's create an alternative society way out in the desert. We can isolate ourselves. Nobody's going to bother us out there. Withdraw. Don't get embroiled in it all. And then there's the fourth group. And the fourth group I'm sure you've all heard of. And that's the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had a totally different diagnosis for what was happening in society. And they said, the Lord will send a Messiah to deliver us. We just need to become a bit holier. We're not pure enough for God to send his Messiah. We need to sort out our act. We need to tidy up our lives and the lives of people in society. Obey the teachings of the law and the Lord will liberate us. Trouble is, there's too much sin around in society. Not enough holiness. Get this right and God will sort us out. That's the way that God is, God is not sorting us out because there's too much sin. So, imagine all of these groups now in society. The zealots, they engage in some act of terrorism. And the Herodians, these compromisers, well, they criticise the, the, their actions and they swear greater allegiance to Rome. The Pharisees then come along and they scold both Herodians and the zealots and launch a verbal attack on the drunks and the prostitutes, saying that they were to blame for the present crisis. And then you've got the Essenes who had withdrawn themselves to the desert probably wishing that God would destroy the lot of them. Okay, the question 
the question in everyone's mind was this. What should we do about the political and religious mess that we're in? Which is the right pathway to take? And against this political backdrop, you see, if you don't understand this backdrop, you will struggle to understand how revolutionary Jesus' sayings actually were. The question in everyone's mind was, what do we do? And against this backdrop, the carpenter's son, Jesus, starts preaching. Imagine a street with, crowded with people, and this young man gathers a crowd in a corner of a local market, and someone shouts out to Jesus, what's your plan, what's your message? And Jesus responds by saying, change the way you're thinking. The kingdom of heaven is available to everyone. Now, if you're a first century Jew, try for a moment to become a first century Jew. You are trying to put this young preacher in a box. Which party does he belong to? Which party does he belong to? Never heard anything like it. You're attracted by him. You're also very unsettled by him. He seems to be a bundle of contradictions. And then it eventually becomes clear. This man is not just another revolutionary. He's calling for a new kind of revolution. He's calling for a new kingdom. And that's where I want to end this morning, because this is really important. I've given you all the, the background, but this is really where it uh, homes in, and this is sort of probably where it affects us today. You see, what Jesus was saying is that you, if you are a part of this kingdom... You don't go and slit throats like the zealots were doing. Rather, if a Roman soldier comes up and backhands you across your right cheek, you turn to him the other cheek also. That is a non-violent counter-move of the kingdom. If a Roman soldier comes up to you and orders you to take his pack for one mile, you actually take it for two as an expression of your own benevolent free will. And Jesus is saying to first century people, this is how my kingdom works. And he's saying to 21st century people, this is how my kingdom works. What Jesus says, if you are part of this kingdom, then you don't curse and damn notorious sinners to hell as the Pharisees are doing. Instead, you sit with them. You offer them gentleness and kindness and compassion and mercy and grace hopefully bringing your godly influence to them causing them to change their ways and change their lives and Jesus is saying that's what my kingdom is like then and now if you're a part of this kingdom Jesus would say then I don't want you to cower and hide away like the Herodians but you will confront injustice all around you at the cost of your own life, even if that is necessary. I want you to speak out for the poor and the needy, for the fatherless and for the widow. Because that is what my kingdom is like. Then, and now, if you're part of this kingdom, I don't want you to hide away in your holy huddle separating yourself from the world like the Essenes because I want you to become lights in darkness because that 
is what my kingdom is all about. Then, and now, I hope you're getting this. You see, Jesus' message was radical and revolutionary. It was radical and revolutionary in the first century and is radical and revolutionary in the 21st century. Jesus was no wimp. He was a man's man. He was the platinum standard of manhood and also of humanity. And he calls us today as his people to be his radical, which means return to roots, radical followers. People who stand for what is right. People who will act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly before our God. So let us do as Jesus has commanded that we do. Let us pray that prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, in Tamworth, in Glasgow, as it is in heaven. And let us do everything that we possibly can to seek first his kingdom and his justice as Jesus taught us to do. Thank you for listening so well. Well, at least giving the appearance that you were. <laughs> There's a lot to take in there this morning. And it may be that you, you want to take a notepad and perhaps go through some of this stuff. Because it is important stuff through the, the, the podcast this week. Please do that in preparation for your life groups. But hopefully, through what we've been speaking about this morning, that will give you some kind of insight, backdrop and uh, a cultural awareness of all that was happening there when Jesus was preaching this incredibly revolutionary message of the kingdom.